HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's, it's how the robots decided that they were going to weight human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, back to talk about all things beverage. When I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at Fausto, uh, or sometimes over down at Celestine and Dumbo, but usually these days more at Fausto. Uh, and some news at Fausto, we, uh, we've recently opened up for brunch at the beginning of the summer, and we started delivering on trycaviar.com. So uh, come check us out in either of those ways. Also, thanks to uh, John Bonet, who uh, about a month ago or so wrote a great article about us, a uh, former guest on the show. Uh, he said we're one of the most exciting wine lists in the country. Just going to give myself a little plug there. Um, come say hi, to, say hi to me at Fausto. And thanks for listening. 
Uh, I'm really excited about this week's episode. I have uh, two of the best sommeliers in New York City, in the country, uh, here in the in the studio, who now work at one of the uh, finest wine retail stores. Uh, in the studio this week, we have Dustin Wilson, co-founder of Verve Wine in Tribeca, and Jeff Taylor, the store's GM. Um, they both come from an extensive background in restaurants, uh, where they've worked at some of the finest restaurants in the country. Um, including both of them at 11 Madison Park. Uh, and uh, they're, they're here in the studio with us today to talk about wine retail, to talk about making that transition from uh, restaurants uh, to, uh, to the retail side and uh, what's going on in their world. So welcome to In the Drink. I'm super excited to have you guys here. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Hi, Joe. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Hey, guys. Um, Dustin, can you tell, tell us about the uh, impetus to... Um, to start uh, Verve Wine? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, for me, it was a lot of different things that kind of culminated into uh, the decision to finally do this. Um, yeah, I, I did restaurants for, uh, I don't know, around 20 years or so, 20 plus years, and um, the last 12 or so was as a sommelier. Um, and, you know, I, I think part of it was certainly a personal decision, like a lifestyle decision. I wanted to get to a place where I had a little bit more of a normal quote unquote normal life. <laughs> um, but you know, more than that, I also saw, you know, I loved taking care of people in restaurants, but, um, you know, you're as a sommelier, you're kind of limited to, um, your guests that evening, I thought, um, to, to have an impact on, on, uh, on them and their tastes and, you know, the wines that they get to explore and, um, doing retail. And especially when it comes to online retail, I feel like you have an ability to impact a, a broader scope of people. So that was part of it as well. And then, uh, you know, we've, I, I kind of saw an opportunity to do something um, a little bit more kind of fresh and fun and, and approachable in the uh, in the retail space. And it was kind of all those things that came together all at once. You know, I, forever I thought I was going to open a restaurant um, and that was going to be my thing. And then uh, this idea popped into my head and I couldn't get rid of it. Yeah. Someone told me recently that he feels like um, sommeliers are like athletes, like professional athletes at some point. You kind of have to, you know, hang the skates up and uh, be a coach or do something that's, you know, or a commentator, something that's not necessarily on the field. Uh, Jeff, do you feel that way as well? Is that kind of your... <laughs> yeah, the less athletic of the two. Um, you know, I've been at it for a long time, too, on the on the restaurant floor. I'm a little older than Dustin, so it's been about 25 years for me. And uh, Dustin and I had been talking about this position uh, for probably over a year before I kind of accepted it and uh for me it was it was time to hang up the cleats so to speak and uh and have a little bit more of a, a relaxed pseudo nine to five ish ten to six kind of uh kind of job so uh it's worked out really well those hours haven't necessarily i'm there a lot that's a farce um, yeah, <laughs> the yeah, retail but, does less hours uh, it does though, because there's few times I'm, you know, if I'm there till nine or ten, that's one thing. I'm not there till one or two in the morning, so that's um, that's a plus. Yeah, how do you think you guys have been able to translate your experience in service and hospitality to the the retail uh, landscape? You know, that was that was a big part of um, of the opportunity that we saw too. Uh, you know, I feel like there in the retail space there wasn't a ton of like restaurant people doing it. Um, and, you know, there's like a, a nuance to service, you know, and we, you know, Jeff and I both learned that in the various restaurants that we worked in, especially at 11 Madison Park and kind of the attention to detail and the little things that we do. And, um, 
we really wanted to bring some of those elements and and that level of service and hospitality and that kind of thoughtfulness to uh, to the retail experience. And not to say that you can't get great service at other retail places. That's uh, you certainly can. There's a lot of great ones out there. But we wanted to kind of bring that extra layer of of restaurant kind of vibe to what we were doing in the retail space. Yeah. And you guys, I know that you guys have been friends for a long time. I've, you know, I've seen you guys out in social circles uh, multiple times. Did you work together at 11 Madison Park or when did you first meet? We did. Uh, Jeff was already there when I started, mm-hmm. actually, back in uh, what was 2000, that, 2011, uh, yeah, the late, late 2011. 2011. And mm-hmm. um, uh, Jeff was my right-hand man. I mean, right out of the gates. I, frankly, uh, you know, I, I came from, most recently, I'd come from San Francisco. So I landed in New York and landed at this big job and this uh, very important restaurant and whatnot. And, um, you know, I was kind of like a deer in headlights for the first six months and Jeff kind of helped me become a sane person. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, couldn't, couldn't have done it without him. So uh, Jeff and I, I think we, we kind of linked up and, and became friends and, and uh, great coworkers very quickly. Um, and that relationship is luckily uh, stuck around, which is great. Continued to grow. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it's a, a, a thing of pride that we have 11 Madison Park in, in New York City. You know, this rest sure. it's such a one of the finest restaurants in the world and that it, that it's here. I love seeing all the accolades that keep winning. And uh, Jeff, I know you were there for some time where the, the restaurant, uh, both of you guys were there, with, uh, the restaurant kept improving and getting better and reaching and reaching. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about your experience there? Sure. I uh, Wow. I uh, started in September of 2007 there. And uh, <clears throat> I came to New York to be an actor and I, uh, I acted pretty much on and off throughout my 20s, and uh, when I got into my 30s, I started to get more uh, disillusioned with the whole acting process and the audition process and going on all these kind of casting calls and uh, not getting the amount of work I wanted, and I found that restaurants were giving me, uh, was giving me more excitement on a nightly basis than, you know, sludging along to auditions and doing a a quick, you know, two-week show or something like that. But I knew that if I was going to leave acting, I needed to go to a restaurant that would fulfill whatever was in my heart for acting with restaurant and that culture. And I had a feeling it was going to be 11 Madison Park. 2007, they had just gotten, uh, in January of that year, they had just gotten a three-star review from Frank Bruni. I went in. Uh, our friend Sam Lip, that we always talk about, was the bar manager then, and uh, he's he's back with them now, which is awesome that it's come full circle for him. Uh, and uh, basically said, "Hey, we're looking for people like you." Um, and I said, "Great, I'd love to start. You know, maybe after Labor Day." And um, you know, back in in 2007, we had no accolades. We had a three star review, and that was it. But you know, uh, Daniel Hume and Will Gadara knew it would be a four star restaurant. Knew it would be a three star Michelin restaurant. Knew it would be in the top 50 in the world and you know you take an interview with will and he tells you all that you you, you believe it you do he has a, a wonderful way with uh <laughs> making you believe what he says and in taking you along on the journey and uh you know it was an awesome seven-year journey for me and after 2009 after uh, august of 2009 when we got the four-star new york times review from frank bruni uh went from you know zero to 60 very quickly there and reservations, you know, the reservation line just ringing off the hook. And uh, it was a really uh, amazing, it's probably the highlight of my my restaurant career to, to have worked there for that long. So, 
Yeah, and for you, Dustin, when you when you started there, they're already gotten the four stars, right? Correct. So this is uh, <laughs> at this second point, day there, uh, they got three Michelin stars. <laughs> yeah, I was I was training yeah. on in the reservations office, uh, learning how to properly answer phones. When Will storms into the office <laughs> and it's like this is day two for me, mind you, uh, and he's like, you know, Michelin just called. We got three stars, and they had. I think this was the first time and only time this has ever happened. They went from one Michelin star yeah. to three. They skipped two. just being two. Um, <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm like, hell yeah, this is amazing. And then almost right after I said that out loud, I was like, holy shit. Now there's even more pressure. Now the work begins. Now, yeah, now there's so much more pressure and there's going to be so much more tension. Um, so... Yes, I was. I was definitely. They were already very well on the upswing when I started, um, and I think they, I think they only I, had one Michelin star before you started. And, that's true. And then three, got three after you got, got there. It took us a while to get that one Michelin, and then Maybe. we kept getting it. So we were we were wondering when two was going to happen, and then I think they uh, they realized that they had maybe. Uh, Done an oversight, so I think they just you know yeah. ramped it up to three. <laughs> oh, they said they said Dustin Wilson's here now. <laughs> of course, exactly, of course, exactly. Of course. Uh, and then they started this climb up the uh, up the San Pellegrino list. And um, I think when I when I had begun, it was right at, right at fifty, I think. And then yeah, the first to the first time we were in, it was fifty, and then it went to twenty four, and then it went to then it went to like, I think nine five four one, and now they're back to four. But they were only you know open for half the year last year, so. Okay. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I second Jeff. It was, uh, you know, for me, definitely the, the pinnacle of my sommelier experience, restaurant experience. And I think that was uh, that was also one of those things. It's like I'm not going to go as a wine director at 11 Madison Park. You're not going to go somewhere else. I mean, like, where are you going to go? You know, that's like the job. Um, yeah, if you're going to be a wine director, if you're gonna be a you wine stay director, there. You stay there. That, it's you've like, got the I... best job. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so at that point, you know, it's like, all right, well, I either stay with these guys, you know, indefinitely and or forever, which was certainly a possibility and something that crossed my mind. Um, or, you know, this is the time where you kind of quit it, you know, at the top and go off and try to do your own thing. And that was that was a big part of it, too. Had either of you guys worked in retail before? Previously, uh, yeah. I, I lived in England when I was uh, in high school, and I worked at the Gap. I was uh, <laughs> I was hired uh, on just my accent alone, no resume, didn't have a resume. I walked into my local Gap in Richmond, England, and uh, they said, "You're American." I said, "Yes." They said, "You're hired." Wow! So amazing. Yeah. And never wine retail for either of you. Well, I, I had actually but. put in a few hours when I was living in Colorado, um, actually working at Frosca. Um, there was a new wine shop that opened uh, like down the road, and they needed some help. So I did some part-time work in retail then. Uh, but you know, it was like one shift for four hours a week or something mm-hmm. for six months. It, it's, so it wasn't really, I wouldn't call it real experience. So what were some of the more surprising things that you guys have um, done in this transition? I know, uh, Jeff, you joined somewhat recently, um, but w- w- is there anything? So you, I'm sure you've been speaking with Dustin for a while, and he's gotten you up to speed. But were there any big surprises switching over to the retail side? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's just a totally different business, and you know, the the way to go about kind of attracting people to it is completely different than in a restaurant setting, and. Um, you know, what people care about, what your customers care about is much different too. I think I walked into it thinking one thing and then the realities hit of what people actually 
really care about. And, um, so it definitely took a lot of adjustments for me mentally to kind of what I thought was going to be really important. And then what ended up being really important were two very different things. Um, but you know, it's, it, and that was part of it too. You know, I wanted a new challenge, um, and I wanted to kind of explore a, a segment of the industry that I hadn't really explored before. And, um, it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed it. And, you know, we're still learning and getting better every day. And that's, you know, that's all we can try to do. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you thought would be important and what guests have been asking for? <laughs> um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, as much as we like to tout, uh, the selection, um, you know, there are a lot of people that care about selection and then there's a lot of people that don't care about selection. <laughs> they just want their, you know, $15 California Chardonnay when they walk in to be mm-hmm. there and they want, want to make sure it's cold and they don't want to talk to anybody. And, you know, I thought things like making sure that we're smiling and greeting people and, you know, kind of doing all these service elements that we care a lot about in restaurants was a huge thing. And obviously we do that anyway. Um, but it's, it's funny what, uh, you know, whereas when people come to a restaurant, they're looking for an experience. When people come into a retail store, they want quick, they want convenient, they want easy, they want inexpensive, or, or shouldn't say inexpensive, they want the right price for what they're looking for. Uh, those are the, like the foundational things in retail, whereas, you know, in a restaurant, it's more about the experience and making it fun and the vibe and, you know, obviously service and the food. So it's, you know, kind of getting past those more, I'll call them fluffier things mm-hmm. that I cared a lot about in restaurants and, and making sure that we've got our bases covered on that, like really essential convenience price, like accessibility, you know, being, helping people quickly, that kind of thing is, has become really important. It's interesting. My, my first job in the wine industry was in retail at Italian wine merchants in my uh, junior year at, in college. And one of the things that I really loved about the store was there was a little bit of an experience. You, they had one bottle of each wine on the shelf. And then when you bought that bottle, uh, there was a dumbwaiter that went down to the cellar. They brought it out. Yeah. It was cellar I remember tab. that. I wow. used to think that was really cool about yeah. that place. It was so cool. I, the yeah. first time I went in, I bought the, the least expensive bottle there. I was in college. And... Uh, it was like 13 bucks and it's, it's, they still gave you that experience. Yeah. And based on that, I turned around on my way out. I was like, are you guys hiring? They said, no. I was like, what about an intern? They said, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> of course. <back> in the <laughs> That's days, always the, the second question. I can relate to oh, that Oh, for now. free? Yes. Yeah. 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 Of course. Sure. Uh, back in the days when you could have unpaid interns. Yeah. Right, so right, right. Really do know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I, so I, I loved that about it. Um, but, uh, but I think one of the things that really separates your story, you know, it's it's part of your your marketing materials too. It's like wines by your neighborhood sommelier, right? So you go in, and yeah, it you're 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 getting that extra level of experience. Maybe some people just want to be able to get something they're comfortable with quickly. But I think there's also people who are, you know, really curious and they want to learn more and they want to like you're able to create an experience for them in the, in the store. Yeah. And we try to treat it that way. We try to treat it like, you know, we used to do service in the restaurant, you know, when people come in and the conversations that you have with them, we, we treat it like it's a sommelier experience. Obviously we're not serving wine in the store. Um, but the questions that we ask, how we help people, how we help them explore, et cetera, is the, is very similar to the way we've always done things For for sure in the restaurant setting. Um, it's to use a restaurant term, it's a one size fits one kind of experience and interaction. We have those, those guests, I don't like to use the customer word. We have those guests that walk in, uh, that, you know, they want the $15 Chardonnay. We stock it for them. We have two bottles cold for them. It's, you know, they're in and out. And then we have other, you know, we're, we're in down in Tribeca. So we have this really cool kind of mix of, 
you know, neighborhood people and other retail, you know, uh, shops down there and people coming in and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, there's a few people that like to talk shop, so to speak. And, you know, they want to go look at all the burgundy and they want to, you know, you to talk about, you know, vintage variation and what the difference is between, you know, the premier crew and the, in the village, what, you know, wines are. Um, so we can do that. The, the, what I like about this idea of the neighborhood sommelier is, um, you know, a lot of retail shops, you go in and you see shelf talkers and, and scores on each wine. We don't have any of that. We have a, a very simply marked price on the bottle with a wax marker, and then we have a staff of very highly trained people that can come in and engage the guest with uh, with what they're looking for and talk about each of these wines with you know with some knowledge and passion. So that's that for me is is what makes it different than some other retail shops where you don't get that interaction. Yeah, I think that that's a perfect store for a wine enthusiast to walk into, right? You really get an extra level of service and knowledge, like. Your combined forty-five years of uh, experience. Uh, <laughs> uh, wow, that makes us sound old. Wow, Jesus! It's combined. It's combined. You know, how do you guys? How do you guys divide your the responsibilities? Um, who does what? So uh, you you may or may not have heard we just opened a store in San Francisco. I've heard. So Congratulations! Two. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, so. My role is kind of morphing. I, I used to be in the store all the time and basically did a little bit of everything, uh, which you know Jeff is now doing. Um, my role is now morphing into kind of the uh, how do we grow the business type of guy, um, and Jeff is really you know taking the helm of uh, of shop operations on a day to day basis, um, which for me has been amazing because uh, you know I trust him a million percent and. Uh, I know he always has, you know, the, the, the store and the Verve kind of brand uh, in mind whenever he does anything, which is amazing. Um, it allows me to kind of go off and think uh, bigger on, you know, what we want to do down the road or, you know, if I need to deal with issues out in San Francisco or um, just kind of that higher level stuff that, that's, that's become my world now. Great. Yeah, one of the things I think that you guys really nail is your marketing. <laughs> um, I think I don't know of any wine store right now who's like spent more uh, time, effort, thought, money probably uh, on on marketing. Your website is gorgeous. Uh, I love all the events that you're doing. Um, I know you've done some videos. I don't know if, that, if that's part of Verb, but Jeff, anytime I see you in a video, <laughs> it brings a smile to my face. Yeah. Bringing the acting guy back out, <laughs> yeah, yeah, out of retirement. Um, <laughs> It seems like that's something that could be a lot of fun as well. Totally. Yeah. So I think with regards to the marketing, I mean, we knew we always wanted a, uh, a kind of tighter outward facing brand, if you will. Um, you know, and that comes from, again, we saw how important that is at 11 Madison Park. And you see it at a lot of other uh, uh, companies, just kind of regular retail companies out there in the world. And that was one thing that I thought we could do to differentiate ourselves a little bit is to kind of raise the bar a little bit on, you know, how we present ourselves, whether it's emails, whether it's the events that we're doing, whether it's, you know, Instagram or the website or kind of anything that's customer facing, you know, we really wanted to have everything look really nice, tight, put together. Um, that was always something we cared about tremendously from the start. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that doesn't, uh, doesn't make a huge difference uh, on you know, on each thing on a granular level, but I think when taken into account, all everything together, it makes the just it makes things feel differently, mm -hmm. um, and I think people appreciate that. We're not afraid to have fun too. You, you said you know it seems like you have a lot of fun, and we do. 
um, you know, the stuff, other stuff that we've done recently, like collaboration with Company Duvin. Um, you know, Caleb and Dustin and I all worked at 11 Madison Park, and then when Caleb went to the company and I moonlit there for a, a little bit uh, last year, uh, and then when I came on to Verve, it was a perfect opportunity for us to kind of get the band back together in a way, and what can we do with a retail shop and a, and a wine bar and a food place that, you know, hasn't been done? So we did, you know, these videos and cross promotions where uh, in the month of uh, May, we highlighted New Spain, all the areas of Spain that we're really excited about. And if you went into company and had a glass of Spanish wine, you got a card that would give you 10% off Spanish wine at Verve and vice versa. Um, and then the past two months, we've done uh, New Australia, a, a place that Dustin and I have both visited, that Caleb has visited, and... Um, you know, it's off a lot of people's radars because they think of Barossa Shiraz and Margaret River Cabernet as being the only wine out of Australia, and that's not the case. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening in Australia. Yeah, last um, time I was in company, Caleb was just so charged up on Australia. Yeah. He's like, the food, the food there is like... Well, they, they, uh, Eric, not that many, Eric, I feel like not that many people know yet, yeah. but uh, it's getting there. And, it's uh, getting there. and shout out to Eric, the chef there, who was at 11 Madison Park with us as well. <laughs> it's an incestuous lot. Um, he came up with an entirely cool Australian menu. He has blood sausage rolls with... Uh, uh, Vegemite ketchup. Um, he's got like a rabbit meat pie. Um, he had a kangaroo tartare. Yeah, yeah. It's he's he's really he's like they've gone you know full immersion so to speak. And uh, it, to me, it's still one of the most exciting places to to go out in in New York. His company. We yes. yes. Yeah, I agree. That's really it's really fun. It's always a good vibe there. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, when we get back, I want to talk more about the selections of wine in the store and drink these two wines that that you guys brought, and you can tell us all about them. Sounds Great. good. This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University. HRN went to this year's symposium to learn about the science, history, and art of bread making. Here's what visitors had to say about the symposium. I love the geeky science stuff. Great food. Love the Armenian pizza. How much I'm eating <laughs> and consuming the carbs. The most interesting thing is just the community. For me, it's the, the, the science of starters. So much information. Very inspiring so far because everybody has a different outlook. I'm not technically a breadhead, but I think I'm going to be one after being here. So whether you're a breadhead or just a curious mind, Check out HRN On Tour for coverage of Charlotte's International Symposium on Bread and an insider's look into Charlotte's food scene. Don't miss our interview with Peter Reinhardt and Kristen Moore to learn more about where to eat on your next trip to Charlotte, a city on the rise. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. I'm Southern Teague of Amoria Margo and a co-host of The Speakeasy right here on Heritage Radio Network. You know, my favorite thing to do every week is to come here and be on the show. I have lots of jobs. I'm a very busy person. Um, and I do this because I love it. I get to sit down and talk to all my heroes for about an hour every week. It's incredible. And I hope that you enjoy it, making a great effort to share with you. And we'd like you to share back with us. It's our summer fundraiser, and we'd love for you to donate uh, at heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate. You can click on the beating heart, and you can even choose shows that you'd like to donate to specifically. And you can also choose a recurring monthly uh, gift. 
Uh, and for all that, we'd be greatly appreciative. Thank you so much. All right, we're back with Jeff Taylor and Dustin Wilson of Verve Wine in uh, Tribeca, New York, and also San Francisco. Um, and one of the things that I love about your store, the great service, it's a beautiful shop, great location, but my favorite thing about it is your wine selections. I go in the store and I see all these wines that I love, that I want to drink, wines that I don't know. I know that I better learn because they're going to be delicious. I think you guys just do such a great job with, uh, with your wine selection. Um, and you brought two of the wines from the store here today. We did indeed. What do you, you bring? Yeah. Um, so both Dustin and I have uh, done some recent travels to, uh, to Europe, and uh, Dustin was just in Spain, and he'll talk about his wine in a moment. Uh, I was just in Champagne and Chablis, and uh, just one day in Chablis with a couple of appointments, but uh, this wine uh, by Eleni and Edouard Vaucare uh, really, really spoke to me. Um, uh, they're a young couple. Um, both of their names are on the label, which I love. They have two young kids that are around the uh, the winery all the time. When we went for the visit, Eleni had one of them strapped to her the entire tasting tour, which I thought was an awesome thing for 2018 to see a, an entire family kind of immersed into this culture. Um, long story short, uh, Eleni and Edouard met in 2010 working vintage in New Zealand. Uh, Edouard's family has a, a larger champagne house called Vaucare Fils. Um they came back, and in, I think, 2012 and 13, uh, Edward's family gave him a little, uh, couple of plots that they totally changed over to Lut Resiné winemaking, and and uh, they have two two wines. They have about a 0.3-hectare parcel in Bateau, and then they have a 3-hectare parcel called uh, Bada Chapelot, which is just below uh, Monte de Tenere. So this is the 2016 Bada Chapelot uh, from uh, Eleni and Edouard Vaucare. Um like I said, I think it's it's classic Chablis. Um, when Vincent Dovesat tells you that he thinks the Vaucarets are making the most exciting Chablis uh, in Chablis right now, you 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 listen. You listen to that, um, yeah. And for me, oh. that you know, it's very price. Uh, it's very affordable. Um, the, the wines are great. It's extremely small production. Uh, unfortunately, with with all the frost and hail damage, it's becoming even 16, smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I just think they do things right, and they're you know they're a couple that works together, and and they have a, you know two beautiful kids, and um, it's really uh, it's really awesome to see that in in the wine world right now that you have a, a, a husband and wife making wine together, and they share complete ownership and and wine making and all that. So I love this wine. Thank yeah. you for thank my you pleasure. for bringing yeah, it. Yeah, I love it my too. first really time delicious. trying it. Yeah. Um, oh, one of the great things about Chablis people I think uh, the, with the prices of Burgundy getting higher and higher um, finding a wine like this that's really expressive and that is actually affordable um, I think that goes against that common idea people think that Burgundy is so expensive or you have to spend a lot of money sure. totally uh, yeah I mean I, I think uh, that's what's for me most exciting about wines like this is it's a uh, you know the name doesn't have a ton of recognition at least not yet um, but the quality is certainly there and um, you know the people behind it as well are are just fantastic. I just, I just told you a story about them that yeah. I could tell the guests when they walk in. Oh and, yeah. You know, if Vincent Dovesat says it's good, I don't need a shelf talker to tell me that. I just told you that. So you know. Yeah, that's that's right. that's the stuff that I like to. Yeah, like and you can be uh, you can still be blown Straight. away by these wines that are not 
you know, crazy expensive. And yeah. that's, that's what I like a lot. And it shows you how important, you know, there's so many high quality wines available in New York, especially uh, San Francisco too, uh, that uh, knowing that there's good people behind it, I think makes it taste a little better. Totally. Right, right. And, you know, one thing I, I would say uh, that Jeff and I both have been very lucky with in our careers is, you know, especially at a place like 11 Madison Park. I mean, we got to open great wine all the time, all the time. Uh, all the time. Um, it was definitely a bit of a bubble, you know, uh, <laughs> and you, you forget that you're in a bubble sometimes. But, you know, it was great. We were tasting the best wines of the world on a nightly basis, um, which certainly skews you a certain way, I think. But it also really gives you those great benchmarks. You know, if you're drinking the best of the best all the time, you you have a good idea as to what great is supposed to taste like. So then when you get a bottle like this that has a lot of those same elements of being great, but, you know, at a fraction of the cost, that's super exciting for us. For sure. Um, and frankly, that's one of the things I really love turning people on to, you know. I've I've gotten to drink a lot of great things in my life and I'm really lucky for that. But you know, me as Dustin on a on a you know, regular Tuesday or Wednesday night, you know, I'm not spending hundreds of dollars on bottles of wine. I'm spending like twenty five, thirty bucks. Um so I like to find stuff that fits my lifestyle for that and to be able to turn people onto those things as well, for me is almost more fun than popping open those crazy expensive high end wines on a nightly basis. Yeah. And that's the extra value that people get by shopping at your store too. They have all of this experience that you guys have knowing all these great wines and being able to translate that at, at, at all different price points. Totally. I would, I would buy this one. To echo that real quick, uh, you know, we don't need anybody. We don't have to sell Rouleau and, and Raveneau to people. That sells itself. But for me at the shop, the kind of my favorite thing to do is to select the wines for the 30 and under shelf. Um, because mm-hmm. in a way, it's almost more difficult because it has to be a wine that's exceeding its price point and you know over delivers and uh we have a lot of those and you know a lot of our guests come in and that's immediately where they go and you know they have their sack of groceries from whole foods and they want to have a wine pairing for that that meal tonight so nine times out of ten they might go to the 30 and under and we have you know everything from whites to rosés to reds there so. so you still get to do wine pairings uh, yeah, You're like well, let me see what's in that bag. It's fun. I, lo- I I mean, I it's for me. I'm like a kid in a candy shop. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about a chef, you know, running late on an entree or something like that. I don't have to worry about, you know, timing the delivery of the wine with the food. I just need to know what the food is, and then I give you the tools to enjoy. You know, I gave you the last condiment, so to speak, mm-hmm. to enjoy your uh, enjoy your dinner so. or turning the table. Yeah, exactly. that's, a, that's the worst feeling in yeah. the restaurant. You're like, oh, exactly. I got people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, uh, Dustin, what did you bring here? So, uh, as Jeff mentioned, we were, we've both been doing some travels. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Spain, uh, and it was really the first time uh, I've been to Spain a few times, but this was the first like real heavy wine trip that I've done in Spain. And um, big focus on Galicia, so uh, spent most of my time there, which I think there's some really exciting things going on. Um, you know, I think Spanish wine is, for me, I think one of the more exciting places in the world right now. Uh, there are certainly the classic areas of uh, Ribera del Duero and Rioja and Sherry and things like that. Um, but I think where I'm seeing the most excitement is both in Galicia and also up in, in Catalonia. Um, Canary Islands, too. And Canary Islands, too. Um and there's a couple of, I think, important importers that are, are really changing the game for Spain and bringing in a lot of these kind of smaller winemakers that are making things not, I wouldn't say in a modern style in the sense of like flashy, but 
in that kind of more terroir uh, specific approach and hands off winemaking and, you know, a little bit more natural and um, uh, sustainable in their farming techniques and the way that they make their wines and um, and also trying to tell the story of a, of a sense of place. And for me, that's those, those are the kind of wines that I love. And um, you're starting to see more and more of those coming into the U.S. from Spain now because of these guys. So uh, it was a great, great visit to Spain. And um, of all the places that we, we visited, this was, for me, the most impactful. Uh, so this wine comes from a place called Ribeiro. Not Ribeiro Sacra, uh, but just Ribeiro. And uh, <clears throat> this is from a gentleman named Luis uh, Rodriguez Vasquez. Um, who, if you talk to anybody in this region, you know, he's like the OG, he's the guy, he's the one that's done the most for this particular appellation. And, uh, he's also the most respected guy there. And for me, I think these were some of the most dynamic wines of the, the entire visit to Spain. Um, so what I like about him is Ribeiro as a, as a region, it's fairly small, um, but it's actually very old. Uh, there's old, uh, there's old cellars there that go back to like the 12 and 1300s, um, that are now kind of <laughs> buried off in the woods. Um, because this place actually used to have a lot more vineyard land than it currently does. It's, it's reduced in size. So a lot of these old spots that where people used to make wine is now just wooded areas. Um, and one of the guys that we visited actually took us into the woods and we spent about an hour climbing through the woods, uh, and, and visiting some of these old cellars. And it was pretty impressive to see there's like old, uh, presses and everything back there built back in the 12, 1300s, just completely abandoned. Um, really cool. And what I also like about this area is the the few producers that are, um, that are like this guy, they're focusing on, uh, indigenous grape varieties that were always planted in this particular area. So, um, this one in particular is, uh, is made from a blend of, uh, Bronsalau, Caño, uh, and something else that now I'm forgetting <laughs> it's on the back label. Uh, anyway, uh, feral, feral, that's what it is. Wow. And, think, uh, I think you'd be excused to not, those are not, they're not super common. You know, a lot of people think of like red wine from Galicia and they immediately think Mencia, which is certainly, you know, kind of the, the hot item right now. Um, and you see a lot of people dealing with that. And, um, what I like about this area is they're, they're kind of saying, look, you know, Mencia is important in Galicia in general, but it's not necessarily important here. Um, these are the more important grape varieties for this place, and they have the most history, and they're indigenous to this area. And so that's all he focuses on for his red. And uh, this is the um, the Tornas dos Pasas Escolma. So Escolma means selection. So uh, this is a wine that sees extra aging, uh, and this is like the the top expression of his uh, of his red wine. And for me, it's it kind of drinks like a I don't know like a, a Rhone wine to a certain extent, but certainly has this like little more t- Mediterranean feel to it. It's like darker fruited. It's lush. It's got great texture to it, but spicy aromatics, very floral at the same time. Um, just really interesting, interesting stuff at the same time. Very food friendly. Um, yeah, I think it's just really, really cool. I love this wine too. I love uh, how ripe the aromatics are, but how uh, light uh, the it is in terms of the alcohol and yep. the body. It's uh, those wines that have that sort of tension and the the juxtaposition of two sort of opposite things. I think tend to be pretty interesting. Um, and certainly, I love all these cool old indigenous grapes. Is that one of the main things that's going on in Spain that excites you about the wines of Spain, the sort of discovery of old grapes? Or what, what, may, what, what makes you so excited about these? Yeah, these part, of it's, part of it's that, but I think more so it's kind of the philosophy that some of these winemakers are taking now. And um, these 
what were once not not backwater regions, but certainly regions that people weren't paying as much attention to. Places like Ribera Sacra or Ribero. Um, there's uh, we visited this amazing uh, place right outside of Madrid called uh, Sierra de Gredos, which is where the Commando G wines are made, and Cuatro Monos, and um, it's more the philosophy that they're taking with regard to how they farm their land and how they take care of their land. And there's this huge movement towards organic or biodynamic or at least like sustainable farming, um, paying attention to local, uh, historical, important grape varieties. And then in the winery, of course, you know, the same story is what's happening elsewhere is more hands-off winemaking, less use of new oak, not trying to make the wines really flashy, no additives, you know, lower sulfur, um, food friendly, just that, that kind of mentality going into the winemaking just makes it really interesting. So when you have that philosophy paired with, uh, these interesting new grapes from these regions that seem to be emerging for me, that's really exciting. it seems like one of the themes that you guys keep going back to is, um, wines that are, are handmade that are, uh, made with some sort of reverence towards nature as well. Like, taking care of the planet totally uh, i mean for me it's like great wine should tell a story it should tell a story of a sense of place and time right and you should be able to smell and taste the wine and be you know somewhat transported and um yeah it should taste good too but um you know for me if i can't kind of get a sense of place out of the wine it just doesn't seem as interesting there's plenty of delicious things out there um but i love when you have this it kind of tells a, a very unique story I like that too. Do you guys have any feelings on uh, natural wines, wines that sort of self-identify themselves in that sort of way? This is my uh, my two sentence answer. I like good wine. If it happens to be natural, A plus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of the current or uh, where I think a lot of people are going with with natural wine. I, I love the philosophy of natural wine. Um, I think the term is still too loose there's no real definition around it um depending on who you're talking to one person might say that they're natural and then you go see their neighbor and they're like oh that guy's not natural he uses too much sulfur or that guy's not natural because you know last year they used some uh cultivated yeast or something like that or there's too much oak on this wine that's not natural Anyway, so I think the word natural is, is a little bit too far flung, but uh, I love the philosophy of it, which is, you know, let the wine become what it wants to become and, and leave it alone and, and don't mess with it too much. So I, lo- I love that. But I also, to Jeff's point, the wine should not have faults. It should be clean. Um, so for me, it's I'm not dogmatic about it. There's a lot of wines that maybe people wouldn't consider to be quote unquote natural, um, that I think are extremely well-made and representative of their region and tradition and all of that. So I think those are really good. Then there's other, uh, wines that are definitely natural. Um, as long as they're nice and clean and they're not, uh, you know, re-fermenting in the bottle or coming off with a ton of bread or, you know, actual faults, then I respect that too. So Verve wines would be handmade wines, free of faults, uh, representative of where they come from and delicious. Correct. Those, that's, exactly. those are all. You've ticked all the boxes <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, exactly. I know you guys are exactly. uh, very involved in a uh, a charity wine tasting. It's sort of a, a big event um, that focuses on Rhone wines. Uh, I was uh, one of the sommeliers for it last year. I, I thought it was just a fantastic event. If you could tell us a little bit about about that. Yeah, the Rebol de Rhone. Um, 
that was something that uh, myself and Thomas Pastorshek of the Nomad Hotel, the wine director of the Nomad, uh, we started up last year, <clears throat> and that was uh, a culmination of. Uh, actually, he and I took a trip to the Rhone. This is several years ago now, um, and we were barrel tasting the uh, the 2015s with Andre Perret. And you know, he kind of gave us some crap. He's like, "Hey, you know, you Americans, you have a festival for Burgundy, you have a festival for Champagne, you have a festival for Riesling, you have a festival for Loire wines, natural wines." He's like, "Why not for something?" For, uh, for the Rhone, and <laughs> Thomas and I looked at each other and Oops. were like, well, shit, might as well do it then. Um, anyhow, so uh, it, it, the first event was last year, and uh, we're doing it again this year, this November uh, 15th through the 18th, and um, it's it's pretty exciting. We get a bunch of cool, um, amazing producers coming over from the, from the Northern Rhone specifically, just the north, and uh, all the uh, proceeds from the entire weekend, uh, all the dinners, the the tastings, et cetera, all those proceeds go uh, to a, a fantastic charity that we care a lot about called No Kid Hungry, uh, which helps to not only feed um, children who are underprivileged, but also to create uh, programs for more, even more children to have access to uh, food in the mornings and in the afternoons that might not otherwise get it. Uh, so we, we think it's it's a great charity and um you know, we wanted to be able to use our platform as sommeliers and have, you know, the influence that we have to be able to create something that not only is exciting for the wine community, but also gives back to the uh, larger community. Yeah, I think that uh, sommeliers in general, and a lot of my friends who are sommeliers, want to be able to do more charity work, be able to give back. And so it's great that you guys have been able to figure out how to use our natural inherent skills and make, you know, use them for good. Totally, totally. And, uh, you know, Jeff was a huge part of last year. We had uh, we had a couple of kind of head sommeliers, if you will, and Jeff was one of those guys. And I was the glass yeah, master. He, yeah, he was I the glass master. I remember you brought all the Zaltos. I, was, uh, I don't know if he liked again. his position, so to speak, but <laughs> oh, it was a very important nerve-wracking uh, experience <laughs> in my life, being responsible for... Uh, thousands of glasses. Uh, yeah, yeah thousands. How many Zaltos were broken last year? Uh, 16. Wow. And that was because we lost one pack of six uh to the wind when we were trying no. to transfer it i think everybody to a to a man um broke one while they were polishing but um 16 out of uh, 800 or whatever it was 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 not bad so, it's the yeah. only wine tasting with with zaltos <laughs> it makes a difference that's yeah. that should be the pro- that should be the, the slogan only, the only charity, <laughs> it's the only wine, only tasting. charity wine tasting with zaltos yeah that makes a difference that, that yeah. does make a difference it's good it's and good. you guys are planning for it uh, already it's coming up yeah yeah we're uh, we're we're actually in heavy uh heavy conversation about it right now just trying to get the details going um we made the announcement that it's happening again the 15th through the 18th so now just trying to nail down a lot of the details. The tickets will be uh, going up for sale very soon with all of the, um, you know, you'll be able to see all the different events and dinners and things like that that we're putting on. And uh, yeah, we're pretty excited about it. And uh, I, I think the uh, the producers, we are, I was just out in the Rhone um, uh, last week. Well, I think it was last week. A couple week. weeks ago. Um, and the reason we were there is actually part of, uh, the weekend of events is an auction, and one of the auction items from last year was a trip with Thomas and Dustin to the Northern Rhone to visit a bunch of producers. And um, so last week, or whenever that was, Thomas and I took out the uh, the folks that won last year. Wow! And took them around, and we visited Chav, and we visited uh, Jamais and Gonon and uh, Andre Perret, of course, and uh, Monier Perrault and several others, and uh, really phenomenal trip. And 
I think one of, one of the things that m- brings me the most gratification out of the whole thing, and obviously besides the the charitable component, is uh, the response that we got from the producers. I mean, they were super excited and really happy. And for a number of them last year, this was uh, not only their first like wine event like this, but this was their first visit to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were just thrilled, and um, you know, to see them kind of light up and uh, with excitement for me was was really cool. That's awesome. And Jeff, anything coming up at the store that you want to tell us about? Yeah. uh, The store here in New York uh, tonight, in fact, from uh, 5.30 to 8.30, we have a, uh, as the sun starts to shine again, we have a late summer sippers and patio pounders. Uh, We'll be uh, pouring um, about uh, 12 different selections, uh, crisp whites, uh, awesome rosés, and some crushable reds that you can have a little chill on uh, for this kind of... uh, warm weather we're still having. Uh, and then tomorrow, um, our good friend uh, Patrick Cappiello uh, and his uh, company Renegat, uh, we're doing a uh, kind of a mini portfolio tasting of his wines, about 15 of his wines, including Jolie Laid and uh, Michael Cruz, uh, Pax, um, 40 Ounce, and a bunch of others. Uh, but most importantly, going back to charity, and unfortunately, it's it's upon us again, uh, the wildfires in California. So uh, 15% um, of the total sales from from his wines that night will uh, will go to uh, wildfire relief. So and the tasting is a pay tasting or it's no, a, it's a it's wine. a free tasting. It's, uh, it's from six to eight. Uh, all the wine is regular priced, and as I said, that fifteen percent will go to uh, uh, the wildfire relief. So wow, it's a good great. cause. He's got awesome wines, uh, you know, and uh, so come see us uh, tonight or tomorrow. All right. Uh, yeah, I definitely, guys, if you're, if you're around tomorrow, I'd really recommend it. Patrick, if you haven't met him, is just a fantastic guy. I love his wines. And definitely worth going by the store. Dustin, Jeff, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you Man, on. Man, thanks for thank having us Joe. on. Really appreciate it. And I want to thanks, uh, give a big thanks to our listeners uh, for joining in for another week. If you like In the Drink and want to help the show out, please rate and review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. I also want to thank our engineer, Matt Patterson, and our producer, Jasmine Molly, and Rennie Lopez, who did our theme music. Hope to see you guys at Fausto, and until next time, thanks for listening to In the Drink. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.